were here last week? Anybody here last week? All right, we're looking at one of the most famous stories in the Bible, David and Goliath. It's like, whatever, if you grew up in church, this is one of the first ones that you learn. Little David with his sling and Goliath, the big giant, you know, and how the, big, the little guy takes down the big guy. So we're actually spending two weeks looking at this. And I've, I grew up in church. I don't know about you did, but I did. So like this story is one that I thought I knew really well. I thought I knew all the ins and outs of it until the, the Spirit of the Lord kind of brought me back and began to teach me things that just begin to astonish me and begin to just, you know, see all the amazing things that God wants to, to do in his people whenever we're facing up against some giants. So we're going to be in the, in the book of 1 Samuel 17 this morning. 1 Samuel's in the Old Testament, kind of towards the middle-ish. Go ahead and go there if you would, and I'll give you a little bit of a recap um, as to what we were looking at last week if you were not here. It is online if you want to go back and listen to it as well, or it's on YouTube. Um, this is called Facing the Giant. Let me get my notes out here because I've got to get in my mind what, I'm, what, what, what we're talking about. All right, so um, a, little bit of the, a little bit of the context of this. The, the people of Israel are in a standoff with one of their enemies to the west, the nation of Philistia. The, the Philistines are a superior military force. Israel is not much of a military force at all. They're largely an agrarian society. They're farmers and they're sheep herders and goat herders. And, you know, they, they, they don't have a whole lot of uh, military know-how, but God has called them to be a unique people. He's placed them right in the middle of some of the most fertile land in the Middle East, and he's promised this land to them. And as you can imagine, that has made many of their neighbors jealous, and some of their neighbors are coming in to sort of occupy this. And that's what's happening here in 1 Samuel 17. The Philistines, who are sort of on the west towards the coast, are trying to take over this fertile valley, this fertile land uh, located right in Israel. And they've been coming against and fighting against um, the nation of Israel, led by King Saul. And where the story picks up is that they are at a stalemate. Uh, the Israelites are on one side up in the mountains and the, Israel, and, and the Philistines are on the far other side to the west and the valley of Elah is in between. And for 40 days, the champion, the Bible calls him the champion, his name is Goliath of Gath, and he goes on to describe him. He is a formidable foe. He is significantly larger than any man they've ever seen. He is, uh, he is, he is armored to the hilt. His armor alone weighs more than probably most men on the side of the Israelites. And uh, the Bible says he is a champion, which means that he has fought many battles before and he has a reputation for not being a loser. He's a winner. When he goes into battle, he is the one who emerges and this reputation is following him. And Goliath is sort of coming out to challenge anyone, someone, anyone from Israel's side to fight one-on-one -on -one to determine the outcome of this battle. And that's kind of a good thing, usually, because it will save a whole lot of bloodshed on either side if we just let two representatives come and duke it out. But the problem is, is that Israel is, uh, this is an unfair fight because Goliath is obviously so large and so heavily armored. He's got a shield bearer, another individual in front of him who's coming out to carry his shield. And he's been challenging the Israelites for 40 days, assaulting them, a barrage of, a barrage of insults, a barrage of, of ridicule. And the Israelites are just wilting. They're wilting under this, and they are running in fear for, for what's happening. And David, this young boy, um, who was in the previous chapter was anointed to everyone's surprise, was anointed by the prophet to be the next king of Israel. This, this boy David emerges and says, what's going on? And David emerges as someone who is going to be willing to take on this, 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 this conflict. 
and he begins to face several different giants before he gets to the one giant, right? And we kind of listed some of these. You know, the, he, he faced this giant of unfulfilled promises in his own life because although he was crowned, he was anointed to be king, that had not, been, that had not happened yet, and he was still stuck herding sheep and tending sheep in his father's fields while all the exciting stuff was happening. He had to sort of wrestle with this, like, why is God not allowing me to move forward into his promises? And he makes his way into the conflict, and he realizes that there is some demoralizing circumstances here, and he faces this giant of demoralizing. He looks around, he realizes we are in a bad situation. We are either going to be, uh, we're either going to be destroyed because this giant is going to come and he's going to kill us and they're going to come and they're going to kill us or, um, or we're going to be enslaved to the Philistines. There's really only two ways. If we refuse to send a man out to fight Goliath, they're going to come in all of their force and they're going to kill us to the very last man. However, if we do find a brave soul on our side to send him out, he's clearly going to lose and then we, are, we will be slaves to this other side. And David realizes that there is demoralizing uh, this plague of, of low morale that is infecting everyone around him. And even the, most, even the strongest, most significant warriors in Israel's camp are just shaking in their boots, wondering what do we do? And David steps up and David begins to ask questions and he says, is no one, is no one gonna fight? Is no one gonna stand up for God's honor? And he begins to receive criticism back from those around him, you know, essentially saying, shut up and go home, David, because what are you doing here? You're not even a, you're not even a warrior. Go back to the sheep. Go back to the, to the pasture where you belong. And he begins to face these, this, this criticism from other people. And he finally goes and Saul calls him in and, and, Saul, and David says, Saul, look, let me do this. Let me, listen, I know I'm not big. I know I'm not strong. I know I'm not, you know, one of your, one of your top military leaders, but I got to tell you, I know how to fight because in the solitude of the pasture, there would be conflict too. There would be these lions and bears who would be coming against the sheep that I have been entrusted to protect and I would have to essentially kill those and I've got this sling and I've got these rocks and this is what I do and I, you know, I, I, I take care and I actually I'll run after them and if they get a hold of one of my sheep, I'll run after them and I'll snatch the sheep out of their mouth and then I'll kill the animal with my bare hands. And I'm going to do the very same thing to this giant that's been assaulting us. And Saul says, okay, fine, if you want to do that, let's at least get you armored up. And he says, David, come over here. And, he, he pick, and, and King Saul picks up his own armor and he puts the helmet on David's head and he puts the breastplate upon his, on his chest and he gets the sword in his hand and the shield. And David, of course, realizes this is not for me. I am not you, King Saul. The Bible tells us that Saul was head and shoulders above the rest. He was tall. And his armor was big. And David says, I'm not, I'm not tall, I'm not big, I'm short and I'm small and this armor doesn't fit me. I've not tested it, the Bible says. And he lays his armor down. And we ended last week with David with a sling in his hand approaching the Philistine in the valley of Elah. And this week I begin to think about what does it mean to face giants? What is a giant? You can think about that. And I feel like the Spirit of the Lord said a giant is anything that threatens to destroy God's promise for you. Anything that stands in defiance of God's promise for you in your life. 
My mind began to sort of begin to think about this. I began to think about all the different, you know, different kinds of giants. You know, I began to think about the failures from the past. That very well is a giant, at least in my life, maybe in your life too. These, these things from the past that seem to be haunting you, that seem to be coming up again and again and again, that stare at you and say, your future is no better than your past. It's a giant it's threatening to destroy God's promise for you. Maybe hurts from others. You know, and I know many of us probably, if you're a human being, you've been hurt, you've been wounded by somebody else. And those things sting and those things really, you know, they, they threaten to destroy all that God has for us. He threatens to destroy God. You know, we, it kind of can cause us to turn in, become hurt, become bitter, become wounded and to run away and to shut down all that God has for us. Maybe something even like addiction and sin. Those are giants too. Things that have us in bondage, things that have us ensnared. And we just can't break out of it. And it's staring at us and say, you'll never be free. You'll never be rid of this. You're always going to be an addict. You're always going to struggle with this. You're always going to be a failure. It's a giant staring at us saying, threatening to destroy all God's promises for us. Maybe there's some emotional, emotional issues that threaten this. Maybe there's actually some spiritual attack that comes on, you know. Fear of the future, that's a big one for me. The fear of the future is a big giant that rears its head and stares at me and says, I'm going to destroy everything that you think God has for you. Ever been there? July 25th, 2002 was one of those days for me. One of those days where I stood in the valley of the shadow of death and I saw nothing but hopelessness and defeat. You see, in July 25th, 2002, Megan and I, we had only been married for a couple years. We were celebrating our anniversary, our second anniversary. We were there with my parents and her parents, and the six of us were vacationing in, in outside of Colorado Springs. We had rented a cabin for that for just a few days over a weekend. We were there. The day before was my birthday, you know, and, and we had a good time cooking out at the cabin, the six of us there, and the next day, Meg and my mom were out driving around. I think they were kind of running some errands and my mom began to have a headache, you know, and she's had headaches, but this was one that was um, a little bit unusual. Um, kept going worse. I wasn't there. I was there at the, at the, at the well, actually I wasn't, we were on the car. The three of us were in the car and my mom was in the back seat, and her head kept hurting, getting worse and getting worse, getting worse. And we said, well, let's just head back home. And um, my mom, she just, she lay down in the back seat, just holding her hand, holding her head. And Meg had the foresight to think, okay, something is, something is wrong. This is not a good situation. We made our way to an urgent care clinic and they're looking at her and they're like, okay, this, we're, we're very concerned about a stroke. We need to get her to a hospital. They called an ambulance. They weren't prepared to, to deal with it at the urgent care clinic. They called an ambulance. You know, my mind is kind of beginning to swirl, like a lot of fear and panic. I don't like ambulances. I don't like things like this. I ride, in the I ride in the ambulance with my mom to the hospital. My Megan goes back to the camp to get my dad and in-laws, and I'm making my way with my mom in the back of an ambulance to a hospital in Colorado Springs. I'm there, and her head is, is, is hurting and such, and she's alert, but she's in such pain that she's not really able to do much or communicate much at all. Make her way back to, to the emergency room. I'm there with her. They're checking her out. Out of nowhere, in a split second, she jumps out of bed, not on her feet, but she leans forward, grabs her head, cries out, and then falls back down. And I hear nothing but that awful beep of the machine. Not the beep, 
beep, beep. But that solid, constant tone of death. And my life stops in that moment. And everything just happens in a blur and the nurses race in and the doctors race in. They usher me out into a waiting room. And I know in a moment, my mom just flatlined. She's gone, she's dead, whatever is going on. And I make my way, I don't know where to go. I don't know what to do. No one's here. My dad, my, you know, they're, they're on their way back from the cabin and I'm just like, I'm utterly alone facing what has to be the loss of one of the closest people in the world to me. Make my way outside. Just sit down on the concrete, my back up against the hospital wall and I see my dad and my mom, or my dad and Megan finally come in. My dad's been sick with the flu for two or three days. He's looking awful, he's feeling awful. He comes in and I just collapse, I just collapse on him, you know. I say, I don't, I don't, I don't know what's going on. I don't know what's happened. We would go in and we would find out that she had a ruptured aneurysm in her brain. She survives that particular rupture that happened there in front of me. They airlift her to Denver and we spend the next three weeks sleeping on <laughs> the uh, ICU waiting room floor in University Hospital of Denver as my mom miraculously recovers from this subarachnoid hemorrhage. Still alive today. Beat the odds and made it. Many of you have met her. But in that moment, everything was black. The fear of the future was just staring at me saying, I will destroy you and everything that you hope for. That's a giant. You know, and I gotta, I gotta tell you, I gotta think this is, this is kind of the, the fear that's coming, upon, that's coming upon David when he takes that step you know, what do we do when we've walked and we are alone in the valley and we're staring at imminent defeat? Army's behind me. Friends are behind me. Everybody's behind me. I'm alone. I've done it. I picked up my sling. I picked up my stone. I'm taking steps. What in God's name am I doing? But here's a secret. Listen to this. David already knew the outcome. You hear me? David already knew the outcome. He knew the battle was already won. So let me tell you why I know that. You ready for this? Because before the battle was fought in the valley of conflict, it was already won in the pasture of obedience. Hear me on this. Before he stepped foot into the valley of conflict, he already knew the battle was won in the pasture of obedience day after day in time with the Lord. So I think here's the first thing for us, the first way that we're gonna fight the giant is we claim victory in the secret place. Claim victory in the secret place. How did David know he would win? Because he was so close to the heart of of God, day after day, in the, in, 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 in the boring, just routine of tending sheep, his heart was knit to the heart of the Father. And as he steps forward into the valley of Elah, he knows the outcome already. You with me? Don't miss that. 
Let's just begin. Let's read a little bit more, though. I, want, I don't want to get ahead of myself. Verse 41, the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? He's mocking him. It's like, little kid, you don't even have that. What am I, like a dog? You're going to like chase me away with that? The, Phil, the Philistine cursed David by his gods. He unleashes this fury of profanity at him. The Philistine said to David, come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, listen to this, you come at me with the sword and with the spear and with the javelin, but I come at you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. David already knows the outcome. First strategy, claim victory in the second place. Second strategy is this. Let's keep on reading in verse 46. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand. He knows it. He sees it. He visualizes the outcome. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you down and cut off your head. Remember that part right there. I will strike you down and cut off your head. I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. So here's the second strategy that David implements. Be driven for the honor of God. That was his main concern. His concern was not so much that we survive as a people. His concern was not so much that he be, prove himself to all these critics that are out there you know, making fun of him. His concern was not so much that like, we win this fight to make another day. His concern was for the honor of God and nothing else. And David comes out and David says, I'm going to destroy you. Why? So that all the earth may know he is God. For David, this is all about God's honor. It's not about his own survival, but it's about his own. So I'm, I'm looking at this and saying, okay, God, what is the strategy for me? God says, concern yourself with my glory. Concern yourself with my honor. If you're looking at a giant in your life, first of all, you got to find victory in the secret place already. But secondly, concern yourself and says, God, what will make your name, your name be known in my life to the, to the nations around me? What brings you the most glory? What brings you the most honor? And he goes on to say this, that, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear for the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our land. And David says, this is such an awesome opportunity for people to know who God is. And I know who God is because I spend every day with him. I know what God does because I wake up and he's there in the morning. When I lay down in the quiet of the pasture, God is there too. And the whole world needs to know who God is. And this is an opportunity for God's honor to be known. And he stares at him and says, you're going to come down so that all the world may know. And here's the third strategy. Let's read in verse 48. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. When you've done all of this, hear me church, hear me beloveds, when you've done all of this, when you've done all that you can do, when you have found victory in the, in the secret place, even if you're not sure about it, when you have found victory in the quiet place with the Lord, and when you have concerned yourself with God's honor above all else, above your own survival, above your own comfort, above everything else, when you've said, God, your glory is all that matters, when those two things have happened, run to the battle. Not one amen, come on. Run to the battle. 
David doesn't run away from it. He doesn't walk. He doesn't tiptoe towards it. David's like, let's get this over with. I know who's going to win, so let's go. Let's run. Think about, how, think about how crazy that looks to this Philistine who is standing there, who has come 40 days to assault this people. And every day he's waking up, he's looking for their best soldiers to come out and he's not seeing them. All of a sudden this little kid comes out who's got a shepherd's staff, maybe. He's got a sling and he's got a bag and this little kid begins to run to him. Imagine how just insane that looks to Goliath. Who in the world is this? What kind of confidence does he have to come running at me? And I bet it threw him off. I bet it did. And it throws the enemy off when you in faith do not retreat, when you run, when you pick up your, when you kind of hike it up and you begin to take charge and begin to move into what God has said you're going to do. Run to the battle. Don't run away from it. Don't retreat. Why? Because the battle is the Lord's, says David. The battle is the Lord's. And David knows this is an unfair fight. But it's not the kind of unfair fight that we think it is. David knows that the odds are stacked, but they're not stacked in the way that everybody else thinks they are. David knows that this is so unfair. You've got a spear, you've got a javelin, you've got a shield bearer right there, dude, but I've got the armies of the living God on my side. This is so unfair. And he runs and he begins to run because he knows that the battle is a guaranteed thing. And we stare at these giants in our life and say, you know, I'm not going to run away from you. Failures of the past, I'm not going to run away from you. Hurt from others, I'm not going to run away from you. Addictions and sins, I'm not going to run away from you. Fear of the future, fear of losing people that we love, I'm not going to run away from you. I want to run to the battle. I want to run straight towards the giant. It's not mine to fight anyway. You know, it's God's. All right, y'all ready for some cool stuff here? Is that the end of the story? No, it's not. <laughs> this is so fun. Verse 48, when the, when the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly to the battle line to meet the Philistine. Verse 49, and David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead. That's some serious velocity. It's stuck in there. And he fell on his face to the ground. And the world stopped in that moment. And the Philistines froze. And the Israelites froze. And Saul froze. And everybody said, what in the world just happened? David knows. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. Listen to this. Come on, listen to this. This is the fun part. There was no sword in the hand of David. Say it. There was no sword in the hand of David. But what did he promise that he was going to do? Did he say, I'm just going to kill you? He said, I'm going to cut your head off, you piece of trash. I don't even have a sword, but I'm going to cut your head off. 
The Bible says he did not have a sword in his hand. Listen to this, verse 51. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his own sword out, the Philistine's sword out, drew it out of his sheath and killed him and cut his head off with it. Dude has such chutzpah. It's not enough just to throw it over there. All right, Mel, I'm... Oh, yeah, I know I killed you. I'm going to come on. I'm standing. I'm going to put up the I'm just going to hack your, hack your head off just to make sure. I told you I would do it. Battle's the Lord's. I don't even have a sword. I'm going to take your sword and use it against you. The things that you fear the most, listen to me, the things that you fear the most, God will return as weapons in your own hands. The things that you fear the most, God's going to give to you to be weapons in your own hands. End of the story? No. Let's keep going. This is fun. All right. So he kills him. The Philistines run. There's this battle. They destroy everybody. You know how it goes. The men of Judah, they rose with a shout. They chased the Philistines as far as Gath so that the wounded Philistines fell all the way. The people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines and they plundered their camp. And David... Verse 54, took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem. This is awesome. It's very gory, by the way. It's kind of PG-13. The head of the giant, he brings it back. But watch this. But he put his armor in his tent. Wait a minute, I thought David didn't have any armor. I thought he didn't have a helmet, shield, and all that stuff. I thought he didn't have this. Whose armor did he take? Whose sword did he take? The battles that you fight today in victory will also be your victory in the future. Here's how I know that. Fast forward two chapters. This event catapults David into, from obscurity, into positions of power and leadership and influence. All of a sudden, despite his youth, despite his size, he is now a formidable leader in Saul's army. And he's given a lot of influence, he's given a lot of authority. Saul, however, has a tormenting spirit of jealousy and rage and eventually begins to turn against David because of this jealousy. He sees that God's favor and God's spirit is upon this young man. Saul's is not. Saul's role is diminishing, becomes jealous and infuriated, and actually begins to attack to try and kill David and come against him. David goes on the run. It's not his time. It's not his time to kill God's anointed. He knows, look, this is not my fight right now. I'm gonna stay out of the way. But he goes, and in verse 21, he makes his way to a town called Nob, and there he um, is sort of gathering some of his own men together in retreat. Ahimelech the priest is there, and Ahimelech is sort of a, someone who is favoring David and, and on his side, so to speak, during the civil war. David comes out, David's trembling, or, or Ahimelech is trembling because he knows, look, David is, 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 he's the renowned leader here. Why is he coming here to my town? Is he coming you know, to, to cause trouble or conflict? He says, why are you here? And David kind of fills in some of the story. He's on the run, he's on the go. He wants some food, finds some food. There's a whole other story there. But here's what's interesting. 
Go in verse 20, in chapter 21, go to verse 7. Now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day. Saul is now the enemy, unfortunately. A certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord. His name was Doeg the Edomite, the chief of Saul's herdsmen. So the implication is, this guy is trouble. The implication is, this is somebody who, who really is a threat to my existence again. David, though, has been running for his life. David is not, you know, amassed. Just like before, he's, he's kind of a little bit outgunned, outnumbered. David, verse 8, said to Ahimelech, Then have you not here, asking this priest, have you not here a spear or a sword at hand? Don't you have any kind of, any, any kind of weapon I can use, anything at all? For I have brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me because the king's business required haste. And the priest said, the sword of Goliath the Philistine, whom you struck down in the valley of Elah, it's here wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you will take that, take it, for there is none but that here. David said, there is none like that. Give it to me. Brian, come on up if you would. The victories that you fight today, the, vic the battles that you fight today, and the victories that you win today are foundations for the future. Don't underestimate what God will do when you run to the battle. Don't do it. Don't underestimate what God will do Bible calls David a man after his own heart. That's the key. That's the key to facing the giant. It's not pulling up courage in your own heart. Be a man after God's own heart. That's it. Find the victory in the quiet place. That's it. Let God's honor be your number one concern. Don't be afraid of the weapons in the giant's hands. So what? He's got a sword, I don't. It's okay. The tables are going to turn very momentarily. And the things that once threatened to destroy me, I'm going to take. And God's going to use them today. God's going to use them in the future. Y'all stand up if you would. I want to do this for us here. Anybody got giant that you're facing? More than one? Any? I got giants that you're staring at. Anybody been in the valley recently? The dark valley recently? <laughs> in some logistical ways, we're kind of there as a church, you know? In some financial ways, we're kind of there as a church. We're a little bit outgunned. We're the underdog. But we're running to the battle. We are. <laughs> full steam. Full sprint. We're running to it. Why? Because... We know the outcome. We know what God's promised. We know that his glory is all that we desire. You got a giant, raise your hand. I wanna pray for you. Then we're gonna move into ministry time. Stick a hand up if you're staring at some giant that is threatening to destroy God's promise. I'm not even looking at it, it's, it's okay. I can't see anyway with the lights on, but your hand is up, I'm praying over you. So Father, for these Davids that are here. For these warriors that are here. Would you be their champion? 
Would you be the strength in their legs and in their arms? Would you give them victory, Lord, in the secret place? Would you reveal, Lord, your heart to them and your compassion? Lord, if it's a giant of the wounds of the past, Father, I pray that you would just release healing and release. If it's a giant, Lord, of the hurts of others, the wounds from others, Lord, Father, would you heal hearts and bring forgiveness? Father, if it's a giant of addiction or sin, Father, would you forgive and free right now? Lord, if it's a giant of emotional or spiritual issues, Lord God, would you bring deliverance and be our champion? If it's a giant, Lord, of uncertainty of the future, would you remind us that you are the future? Father, we run to the battle, believing that this is yours. You've promised it. It's not a fair fight. And Lord, the things that threaten us, Lord, will you use them in the days to come for your glory? Jesus, in Jesus' name.